My name is Donna. I get the privilege of reading the word today. It is, excuse me, John, um, the Gospel of John, verse 9. I'm starting uh, chapter 9, and it's on page 842 in your pew Bibles if you want to follow along. And as a little aside, we just, in the word it says, God breathed out the stars in the heavens. And we just sang that that same breath is in our lungs. So let that settle in your heart as I read. I'm starting with verse 59. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. 9-1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go. Wash in the pool of Siloam, which meant scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, Nah, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Well, then how were your eyes opened? And he answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, well, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight, and he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? And his parents answered, Well, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, 
Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, well, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already, and you wouldn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You're his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, and those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. This is the word of God. Thank you, Donna, for reading that so well. It was a, yeah, that was wonderful. I wonder, as Donna was reading that so well, though, if some of you wondered, why is this passage so long? <laughs> um, couldn't John have just said, Jesus healed the guy, it made some happy, some angry, the end? Like, what? Why does he need 41 verses? The question about length and why this passage is so long, it could come from a rather irreverent posture towards Scripture. So we had better things to do this morning. Can we just get to something else more efficiently? It could come from that way, but I don't think that's many of us at all. After all, you chose to come to church here this morning where we often set aside large portions of time to put our attention on the Word of God and to preach the Word of God. But I think we can ask that same question about length from a place of reverence. Like, Why is it so long? In the last sentence of John's Gospel, John tells us that Jesus did lots of things, but, quote, were every one of them to be written, I suppose he says, the world could not contain the books that could be written. John 21, 25. In other words, John is telling us that every word he did include, every story he did tell, and the length at which he told them was intentional. So why is this story so long? 
Let's pray and we'll study this passage together and see if we can't move towards an answer of that. Would you pray with me? Lord, we've prayed it many times already and we've sang it in a sense sung prayers but we ask again that you would open the eyes of our heart. That we would see more than we could have seen with only mere effort or mere physical sight. That you would so work among us. That we would know who we are and who you are better as we behold Jesus in this passage. We pray this in his name. Amen. We don't have as many blind people today as there were in the ancient world. Many of us here at church are visually impaired in some way, whether small or large. You have glasses or contacts, maybe prescription glasses. Maybe they're just the glasses you get at Walgreens, the readers. And uh, you leave, you know, you buy 10 of them and they sit in your car or your, uh, your jacket pocket or your house or your office or you leave them at church. I know this because you come back in the middle of the week looking for them or find them next week. Um, but we don't have as much actual blindness. Medicine, technology, surgeries, and so on and so forth have made blindness, blindness less common, especially in developed countries, but blindness is still a thing. Just recently, in this last year at our church, there was a few people that had issues with their eyes that, I wouldn't say immediately, like within the next second or two, but like over the next, if it wasn't addressed in a day or two, they were going to lose their sight permanently. So it's still a very real thing. And you can go on YouTube, actually, and, and look up videos of people who have just received their sight back or I say received sight for the first time or received their sight back after having lost it for a long time. And I did that late in the week. I was waiting till late in the week to do it because I knew that as soon as I did it, exactly what was going to happen, which was I would start weeping like a baby. <laughs> you look at these, and, and, and I did, so that's what happened. But you go out, you watch these videos, and you see the expressions. Like the joy and the wonder and the excitement and the confusion, frankly. Like they want to look everywhere at once and they don't want to blink. They're astounding videos. You've probably seen someone share something on social media before and says, you know, I bet you can't watch this without smiling. It's, you know, some cute baby or, or some animal doing something cute, whatever that would be. But I, you watch these videos and it's like I would say to you, I just, you can't not smile, perhaps not weep. The man in our passage this morning received his sight for the very first time. Right? In one of these videos I saw, like there was a guy who hadn't seen his wife in 10 years because he had lost his sight. Other videos were, were of children for the first time seeing. They, hadn't, they had never seen rainbows. They had never seen the sunrise. They'd never seen their mother's face. They'd never seen their own face. And here's this man who receives his sight. He had never seen sunrise or his mother's fate. And not everyone who saw this miracle was happy, though. In fact, some were angry. As is so often in the case when the Bible's talking about 
seen. It, it, it's, 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 it's a metaphor. It's, it's, it's for something deeper. And we do this all the time too. So you might have, say, a math teacher standing at a blackboard and they you know, make this equation on the board and write it out and they you know, say, okay, do you understand this? The teacher might say, and a student might say, well, yes, I see, or maybe, no, I don't see. And you see that exchange, like, do you understand? And the person says, I see, or I don't see. Right? Like, the word understanding becomes, I see, or I don't see. It, the idea of understanding functions at the level of metaphor with sight. So we do this all the time, and it's happening all over this passage. Jesus speaks of himself with seeing metaphors. He speaks of being light of the world and working while it is day before it's night. And at the end of the passage, he speaks of those who see spiritual realities and those who become blind to them. And it's the importance, I think, of dramatizing this, this metaphor, dramatizing, playing it out, dramatizing it so that we can all see what this reality looks like, dramatizing it, I think is why the passage is so long. This passage shows us the cruelty that comes from spiritual blindness, but also the warmth of spiritual sight. God wants us to behold that when a person is blind to their sin and blind to their Savior, blind to the beauty of Jesus, all kinds of bad things happen. Of course, he wants us to know that the opposite is true, but that's getting ahead. So that's how we're going to talk about this story, two different halves. We're going to talk about beholding the cruelty of spiritual blindness, but also the warmth of spiritual sight. So on this first point, behold the cruelty of spiritual blindness. It's probably helpful to give a little context, though, um, about what's going on here. I mean, I would say in the spring, we were teaching through the Gospel of John, and we ended, just as Donna read, in last verse in chapter 8, and we begin this morning in the first verse of chapter 9. Now, all summer, we took a break to study the life of Abraham, but we're coming back. And I'll just say, we'll probably be here in the Gospel of John, except for Christmas weeks, um, through Easter. So that'll finish the book. That's general contracts. But more specifically, what, what was going on? What was going on? I mean, the spring is forever. Like, what was going on in the spring in chapters 7 and 8? Well, there was this huge Jewish festival that was taking place sort of in the background of the passage that kind of leaks out into the story itself. There was the festival of tabernacle, or the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. Now when we talked about this in the spring, Daryl Davis actually came up with this, he talked about it as the Festival of Camping. Um, it, it was a way to describe um, the Old Testament stories of God leading the people out of Egypt and the camping or the living in booths or tabernacles that they did during that time. It's interesting that this um, Feast of Booths still continues today. I don't know if you pay attention to Jewish calendars. I, it's not something I'm watching super close. But it began on Friday night at sundown. And so uh, I was looking at a neighbor's yard. They actually have built this structure booth thing. So if you know kind of uh, Jewish people, there's people still doing this. Front yard, backyard, they're building structures, uh, living them and are doing things in them throughout the week. So this is still a thing. And besides the tents, or the booths featuring, like as a prominent feature in this, there was also a celebration of light. 
When God led the people out of Egypt, he led them with this pillar of fire um, by night and a, and a cloud by day. Wherever he went, they went. They never walked in darkness. I want to read to you something I read in the spring, but it's um, called the Mishnah. It's, some, it's from the Mishnah. It's a collection of Jewish traditions. And there's a whole book put together about this festival Probably what I'm going to read dates from the second century, but it, it, I think it accurately reflects what was going on in the time of Jesus. So the context is that it's describing these, these priests who would climb these long ladders, and there's giant, what I'll call tiki torches, 16 gallons of oil, it says. It's full of that. They climb it, and it says, quote, young priests would light the candelabra, this is at night, and the light from the candelabra was so bright that there was not a courtyard in Jerusalem that was not illuminated from the light. And the pious and the men of action would dance before the people who attended the celebration with flaming torches and they would juggle in their hands and they would say before them passages of song and praise to God. And the Levites, the Levites would play on lyres and harps and cymbals and trumpets and countless other musical instruments. Close quote. So, there's dancing and joy and light but not everyone experienced this light in the same way. There was, of course, this young blind man. Let me read verses 1 to 7 again in chapter 9. As he passed by, that's as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned? This man? or his parents, that he was born blind. Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. For me, we must work the works of him who sent me while it was day. Night is coming and no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Just like with all that background and the festival, you think how electric that would have felt. I know he didn't say this, but it would have been like Jesus saying like during 4th of July, I am the firework of the world. Like it would be kind of silly to say, but like it would make it like, like, oh, we get that, what you're saying. You're saying you're significant and bright and so on and so forth. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and he said to him, go wash in the pool of Shalom, or Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. We'll say more about Jesus later in the sermon, but for now, notice these disciples. They saw, just as Jesus saw, this man blind from birth, and they blurt out their questions. If it feels rude to you as you're reading it, or perhaps even cruel, that's because it is. This man can't behold the dance party that's recently taken place. He doesn't even know what light looks like, except to say that I, I, he could maybe perhaps feel the warmth of the Judean sun as he sits in it begging all day long, but that's all he knows of light. And the disciples make him into this kind of theological discussion about sin and suffering, like seemingly right in front of him. He's blind, but he's not deaf. 
And the way they frame this question tells you something about their view of sin and suffering. And just, I mean, to think about this, imagine if I had walked down, and I'll pick on David since he's in the front row, <laughs> this is easy. If I walked down, I was like, who dressed David this morning? Himself or his wife? Like, you'd be like, whoa, <laughs> right? Like, that's kind of awkward. That's what they're doing, except with something that hurts a lot worse. And for these disciples, just this, their question betrays their worldview, how they thought about sin and suffering. I'm really fashion. <laughs> for them, the question isn't whether or not some particular sin caused this particular blindness of this man. They don't question that because they, they think they know that that's true, that this that particular sin causes particular suffering. That's their understanding of things. It's this one-to-one or several-to-one sins and suffering. So their question is particular. Who sinned, him or his parents, that caused this blindness? Church, behold the cruelty of spiritual blindness. It's not true. That all particular suffering is owing to particular sin, as these disciples seem to see it. In other words, don't assume when you see a person who's blind or a person with cancer or Parkinson's or who's had a miscarriage, that their suffering is because they've sinned in some particular way. When a child dies, you don't tell the parents this happened because of you. And your sin, in particular, some secret sin that no one knows, but you know, and if you just confess it and get right with the Lord, this won't happen again. And yet that's exactly what happens in the Old Testament book of Job. When Job's children die, his friends, if we can call them that, that was the book calls them that, they make these long speeches about how Job has sinned, and if you just, Job, if you just take that sin that's in the secret and bring it into light, well then, something worse won't happen. In the end, God rebukes Job's friends for this and has Job pray for them that they can be restored. And the disciples of Jesus should have known this. We should know this. And yet when we forget this, we become, when we become blind to spiritual truth, we can become very cruel And what we could call the rudeness of the disciples becomes full-blown cruelty in the hands of these religious leaders. Where we might call the disciples visually impaired, they are spiritually blind, and their cruelty has worse consequences. I won't go into all the back and forth that happened in the passage. There's a number of them. I'll just summarize. Jesus heals the man, as we've been talking about, which we find out in verse 14. It's the Sabbath, which, oh no, that's a big deal, because they've got all these rules on top of the Old Testament Sabbath. So like there's the Sabbath in the Old Testament, the rules they're supposed to weigh, they're supposed to keep it, and the things they're supposed to do and not do. But then the, because it's like if we break that, then we'll get in big trouble. So they add all these rules on top of that. And one of those is you can't heal anybody on the Sabbath or make them better unless it's life-threatening and, you know, Blindness isn't, strictly speaking, life-threatening, at least in the moment. It's life-changing. So Jesus breaks that. And then you can't knead dough on the Sabbath, and Jesus makes the mud, and the saliva puts it on his eyes, which is strange, but he does it. That's kind of like kneading dough, they say, so that's a no-no. And Jesus knows all of it, and he does it anyway. And I love that, <laughs> right? 
I mean, he's rattling the cage, he's poking the bear. I don't know what phrase you want to use. That's what he does. So first they have to verify the miracle. They bring the neighbors, verses 9 and 10. Some say, yeah, he's been begging there for a long time. And I know some of where you live or where you drive, you see people that don't have homes or they're in uh, desperate circumstances for some other way or situation. But it's fairly transient. You don't see the same person year after year after year in the same place ordinarily. But if you did and you weren't in a car, you just had to walk by, you'd, you'd have some relationship with them. And here people say, like, yeah, we know this guy. So they talk to him, and he tells them the whole story. Then they bring him to the religious leaders. The mud, the spit, the washing, and the, the, the sight comes back, and then they're not really sure what to think about that. Well, was he, he may have been blind for a while, but was he really blind from birth, right? So they've got to get the parents to answer that one, because maybe he doesn't even know. So verses 19 to 23, they ask him. They say, yes, he was arch kid, and he's blind since birth. They're a little less certain of how it happened. Verse 22, you see, uh, they're not going to say that Jesus was the one to do that because in the context, if you confess Jesus as the Christ, then you're going to be put out, excommunicated, so to speak, from the community. So the parents say, he's of age, ask him. I know, he doesn't, he, is he old? Is he young? We don't really know. He's kind of like a teenager just from sight. So, but they're saying, no, he's old enough. You, you, you just ask him. So he's probably an older teenager then verse 24, they bring this teenager back and ask more questions. Look at the exchange with me here. I'll read this portion. Verse 24. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Now, when they say give glory to God, they're not saying praise God that you've been healed. What they're saying is you've been lying up to this point, confess that you've been lying and that Jesus is a sinner and you weren't really blind and this is all a charade. Give glory to God in that way. Verse 25, he answered, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? I love that line. Talk about poking the bear. Like He's reading the room. He, he knows, I think. And the religious leaders didn't love that line. They essentially say, you snotty teenage brat, right? Verse 34, they answered him, you were born in utter sin. Would you teach us? And they cast him out. So many things we could talk about this exchange back and forth and the logic behind what they say and why they say and how the Sabbath works and all that. I just sort of want to leave that aside and just step back and say, behold the cruelty of spiritual blindness in several ways. They don't care that this man can now see. It's really not all that interesting to them. They just want to make him the enemy in their theological crusade against Jesus. They need someone beneath them so that they can be above that's cruel. It's relatable. And their spiritual blindness has other consequences. It always does. Spiritual blindness will make you unwilling to reckon with the data that's right in front of you. You can be shown all the data in the world. Jesus himself, the light of the world, can be standing right in front of you doing miracles. But if you will not open your eyes, you, you can't see it. And they're unwilling to open their eyes. They won't see that they're sinners and they need a savior. And that unwillingness has consequences, cruel consequences. It makes them bullies. 
bullies to the parents, to each other, towards the teenager. We know that you're blind. or they, Do you know why you're blind? They say you were born in our sin. Don't lecture us. Few comments. Few comments can be as cruel as telling someone who is suffering and their world is turned upside down and they're just racking their mind and their brain and their heart to just figure like, why is this happening to me? To go to a person like that in that situation and say the reason you've had a miscarriage, the reason you've had cancer is because you, some hidden sin in your heart. If that's happened to you, you, you know how cruel that is. Thankfully, we see a contrast in Jesus, don't we? That's our last point. Behold the warmth of spiritual sight. Jesus sees this blind man too. But he sees more than the others see. He sees a man who, whom God will use to display his glory he doesn't just see the suffering. He sees what God's going to do through that suffering, either to sustain him or to heal him or whatever would happen to him or to us through different sufferings, the way that God's glory would be displayed. Jesus sees that. And he's so kind to these disciples. He just takes them where they are. He essentially says, well, the question was a bit rude the way you brought it up, but let's worry about that later. Let's just start where you're at, which is always what Jesus is doing. Starting with people where they're at, at least those that would come to him, which is he wants from us. Just come to me. Just where are you at today? Let's go. And notice the way that Jesus cares for this man after he's thrown out. Not only does Jesus go find him first time, heals blindness, physical blindness, but then he goes and finds him again a second time. I mean, his parents were a bit timid when he's of age. Ask him. That was going to be awkward later. You know? And these religious leaders, they're bullying him. They, they certainly don't care. But Jesus, in that context, draws closer. Look how they talk, verse 35 through 41. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Now, it's hard for us to get the nuance here, but he's, he's not saying what, it, like the Son of Man is capital S-O-N. It's like Jesus, one of his favorite designations of him. It's an Old Testament phrase about this exalted person who's going to come, one like a son of a man, and he's going to rule and reign. And so there's this context of expectation. And, and, and the blind man's saying, it's like, not that I didn't know what that is, but like, who is that? What he's saying. And Jesus said to him, verse 37, you have seen him. And it is he who is speaking to you. Verse 38. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. It's the climax of the story. And then there's this kind of fallout from it. Verse 39, 40 and 41. Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world that those who do not see may see. And those who see may become blind. Or at least those who say they see will become more blind. It seems to be the sense of what he's saying. Verse 40, And some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? <laughs> you just, you can, just, the disdain and everything. <laughs> right? Just disgust. 
Are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt, but now that you say with your tone of voice and your facial expressions we see, your guilt remains. You'll notice, don't you, the teenager's statement about the Son of Man. He's just essentially saying, well, I couldn't have read it for myself because I can't see, but I've been told about over and over again how this prophecy in the book of Daniel about someone who's going to come like one, like a son of man, and he's going to rule and reign, and I've, I've heard the stories in Isaiah about when the Messiah comes, he's going to open the eyes of the blind, and when he does that regularly and as a pattern with power, it's going to be the sign that the Messiah is here, and I just don't know who this Messiah is, but if I knew who he was, then I would believe. Jesus says, just open your eyes, your spiritual eyes. I'm right here, right here. What do we read next? He says, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Verse 38, that, that verse should be bizarro to you in the context of like a Jewish framework about you don't ever worship a man. Like that's a huge, like the big E on the I church, talking about sight language here. Like you don't do that unless, of course, it's more than a man. You worship God alone. And this was no mere man. Jesus was and is more, which is what John wants you and I to see. That's, that's the point. And I love the warmth of the way this conversation unfolds. The more we see of Jesus, the more we love him. Just as this healing took place in stages, so there's the mud and the spit and the going and the washing and the coming back and the seeing, so his Spiritual conversion takes place in stages. There's steps. You see the teenager's delight in Jesus grow as the story goes on. In verse 11, the teenager describes, Jesus says, well, the one they call Jesus, verse 11. And then by verse 17, he's a prophet. And then by verse 33, well, I'm not sure whether he's a sinner or not, but he's certainly healed me, so he's definitely at least sent from God. And then finally, verse 38, he's confessing him to be the Son of Man and worshiping him. His eyes are opened. This teenager is willing to see and confess more than his parents even. And just as a side, I know that's true. Some of our teenagers, probably 30 of them meeting downstairs in the youth Sunday school right now, there's times when Teenagers come alive to the gospel in ways that their parents haven't yet. It can be great challenges. This teenager would understand that. But they're on their own journey. It, in the end, I would say it is a really precious thing that this passage is so long. On the one hand, it gives us the eyes to see the cruelty of spiritual blindness, but also in that contrast and in that backdrop, the warmth of what it means to see Jesus. This Sunday marks a special day for us. The week after maybe a special day, which is also, in a way, a special day as we planted a church. And for months, people have been asking me, maybe you've been asking each other, well, what's next for us? <laughs> I'm talking about a church plant for a long time. What's next for us? It's a good question. I've been thinking about it a lot myself. And I don't know all, all, I'll say, that there is for us in the next week or month or year or years. But I do know I still want us to be about this. Seeing 
more and more of the warmth of Jesus. That's not going to change. When we began the sermon series in John, I, I, I went for the first sermon, we went to the very end of the book or near the end of the book and grabbed two verses and just preached those to hear John's point, his heart for the whole of the book so that as we preach through it, we would know this is what he wants for us from that. And it's been a long time since I've read those. Let me read them again. John writes near the end of the book, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, signs like healing the, this blind man and all sorts of other things. He says, which are not written in this book. He said, I didn't write all that he did. But these are written, what I did write, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. And as we keep moving through this book, like this one man, we keep seeing more of who Jesus is. We'll see that he doesn't just heal physical blindness with his spit, but he heals spiritual blindness with his blood. While the connection to sin and suffering is usually a mysterious one, there is one crystal clear connection between sin and suffering. Jesus will suffer so sinners can behold the warmth of Jesus forever. And that message could feel like, oh yeah, that's abstract, that's great, Jesus He opens our eyes and that's great and he suffers and dies. But what does that have to do with us? What does that mean for us? What do we do now? We planted a church and what does it mean for us this fall? Well, I guess I'd just say everything we do is because of this. Why do we have dinners planned among our church this fall? Why do we start two Wednesday night programs for elementary students to see and experience Jesus? Why have we got two new volunteer pastors joining our pastor elder team, considering what it might mean to join that team? Why do we have baptisms planned for our church services in just a couple weeks? Why do we have a pickleball tournament planned where we don't want just the church pickleball players to come? I know there's a bunch of you. But why do we want you to be thinking, okay, my neighbor plays pickleball and my coworker plays pickleball and my friend plays, and I'm gonna bring them to be around other. Why do we want that for you? Why did we plan a church anyway? It was so much thinking work. <laughs> it's because seeing the warmth of Jesus propels people on mission. There's a lot to be done. The beginning of John's gospel, two disciples come to him and they ask Jesus a question. Classic Jesus doesn't answer the question. But he just says, come and see. And then he promised them, for those who follow Jesus, they're going to see greater and greater things. And as they followed, so they saw. And I think that promise is still true. Next week, Pastor Ron is going to continue Gospel of John. He's going to preach from chapter 10, probably one of the most famous passages where Jesus speaks of being the good shepherd. So I look forward to that. Would you join with me in prayer as we invite the worship team to lead us in one closing song? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he comes to us as a savior. At first, and again, and again, and again. Lord, I pray for our church in this season of transition, season of newness, people coming, people going. 
Lord, that you would continue to keep us about this one thing, the beauty of the gospel. We pray this in Christ's name.